Hey everyone, my name is Dara Benukar, and this is The Shakespeareance. If you're new here, I, along with my former English teacher, Mr. Letterer, break down Shakespeare. In this episode, we'll be wrapping up Act 1 of Hamlet with the discussion of Scene 5. I hope you enjoy. Scene 5. So, I have an scene overview. Five. So, are we? The, is this the last scene in the act? It is the last scene in the act. There you go. Oh, Shakespeare, you're so formulaic. We love that about you. Okay, so the ghost and Hamlet talk. The ghost reveals that it was Claudius that killed, I don't want to say him, but, you know, King Hamlet uh, with poison in his ear, like we talked about. Uh, and he had no chance to repent before he went. No, I didn't mean to rhyme there. Um, the ghost tells Hamlet not to let Claudius continue his reign, but to leave his mother's fate up to God. Um, and Hamlet vows to listen and the ghost exits. Then Marcellus and Horatio enter. They want to know what happened, but Hamlet kind of avoids answering. Um, and then he also makes Marcellus and Horatio swear not to tell anyone what they saw. And even the ghost makes ghost makes them swear. Then one of the most important parts of the scene and the act as a whole is that Hamlet hints that he might start to act crazy soon, but that Marcellus and Horatio can't tell anyone about that either. So. We, I mean, we kind of think we know what's going on, but I, I don't want to say we get confirmation, but we get some more details, I guess. Um, and so the first thing I want to talk about is that when explaining what it is that Claudius did, the ghost calls uh, Claudius adulterate. So this, you know, not reveals, but it it hints, I guess, that Gertrude did cheat on King Hamlet with Claudius. And, you know, again, we might have assumed that before, and this none of this is really actually confirmation, but it is a detail for us to think about. Yeah, but again, we have to question the source. Like, and that's the crazy thing about this, which is like, if it's true, then Hamlet has very clear directions on what he should be doing but is the ghost reliable is the ghost who it says it is it's a supernatural being so the idea that it is actually his father's ghost and he came back and all of this stuff it it's and that he died without being confessed like that that whole thing is just very suspicious. And Hamlet never ultimately fully trusts it. I mean, that's part of Hamlet's problem too, is he can't commit to one direction. You know, it's like, I don't know. Like if you're going to go to law school, just suck it up. But he doesn't want to. He wants to keep one foot in a, you know, pre-med. A poor analogy. No, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot. So anyway, then Claudius says, um, oh, not Claudius, King Hamlet says, well, King Hamlet's ghost says to let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest, but notes taint not thy mind nor let thy soul contrive against thy mother 
ought leave her to heaven and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. So what I interpreted this as him saying is that, um, you know, basically stop Claudia, stop what's happening, but don't harm your mom because, you know, God and her guilt are enough, basically. But I'm wondering why the ghost says this. I mean, and when trying to reason with this, I can, the reason that I could see it as is that um, if nothing else, this continues to portray King Hamlet as perfect. Like he was so good to Gertrude and even now is still saying, you know, don't try to get revenge on her. Just, you know, let what will happen happen. Um, And like even after what, you know, we think she did. Do you think that's what the point of this was? I think, you know, it occurs to me as we are, you know, talking about this, that one of the one of the main points of art, right, is to make you feel things, to make you think and to make you feel. Okay. And if this play is about one thing, it's about madness, right? And it's about grief. And it's about how those two things can become very intertwined, excuse me. And, you know, Shakespeare's in part writing about the grief of losing his son. Um, And it's interesting how at times somebody can create a story that seems like it has nothing to do with what it's really about. Like if this really is about Shakespeare's grief at losing his son um, and how, and how maddening that is, um, then why didn't he write something that was more straightforward other than this, you know, these weird sort of like psychological connections that are sprinkled in here and there. Um, why not just address it with a play about losing a child? Um, but what he does instead, and I think this is what where the greatness of the play comes from, is that he does everything he can to make you feel that maddening grief. And so I think the answer is there's so many ways to read this. That's the problem. I mean, I I do think that it, in part, you could absolutely read it as, you know, here's this, you know, perfect guy, Claudius, who was unjustly murdered and, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, King Hamlet, who was unjustly murdered by by his brother. um, And he's still, you know, look at this. He's so forgiving. He still loves his wife and, and he wants to leave it up to God, right? And it shows his goodness because, after all, he's an agent of God, and he wants to leave God's will to God's will. But there are certain things that, you know, and this is a very gendered Elizabethan sort of take on it, which is like, this is the business for the men folk, right? Like, leave the ladies out of it. This is, this is, this is about settling scores amongst the men, right? Um, so you can read it like that. You can read it as the ghost is, is a deceiver. You can read it as, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. Like why forgive his wife, the ghost, 
but not forgive his brother. Like his brother is blood, right? And his wife is his soulmate. And they had their souls bound together and they believed that they were literally bound together. And so, you know, his fate, the ghost's fate, is intertwined with that of Gertrude because, again, he died without being confessed and that if he was murdered, does it, what does it do to their marriage? And she married the murderer. And, you know, so there's all kinds of weird theological implications to it, considering that they, they literally believed that their souls were one when, when wed, that that was not a, a figure of speech. You know, it was a joining of souls. And, and so why is it, is he worried about himself? So leave, leave Gertrude alone. The point is, is that there's no answer. It's maddening. There is no reason to it. And that is what loss is. Like, and Shakespeare manages to capture that in this really unsatisfying play. The whole damn thing is so unsatisfying. And there, and it makes no sense so much of the time. And that's the point. The point is it's, it's, no matter which way you turn, you could be right, but then again, maybe wrong. And there's no clarity. So I think when I read that scene and I read that, that you know, sort of instruction or whatever you want to call it, um, it doesn't, I mean, that's the point is that it does not make sense. And you can analyze it different ways that are contradictory. And Hamlet, is just at the vortex of that contradiction and he can't move and it's, and it's paralyzing to him. And, and ultimately, you know, that paralysis consumes him as we continue on. So let's continue on and watch Hamlet sink. Well, I mean, what you said, it made me think like a lot of times we're telling Hamlet make a decision, right? But he obviously doesn't think, well, I mean, maybe he knows what the right answer is, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. So we, you know, read or watch this play um, where there isn't necessarily a right answer. And then it's almost like Shakespeare's playing a game with us because then we expect to read it and understand exactly what's going on. Like for us to have a clear answer about what's happening. And it's like, no, you don't get to know either. No, never. I mean, that's the that's the sick thing about the play is that it's just it's it, you constantly want him to resolve to something and tell us, just tell us. But imagine him, you know, it's like it's it's a conversation like so many of the things that he writes about. It's a conversation between him and God. And it's about why won't you tell me what's the reason? Like just let me know that it's okay. Just let me know that there was a reason. Let me know there was a purpose. Let me know the plan. And this goes back, this actually just struck me is that this, that goes back to the book of Job. And the book of Job figures into Shakespeare. I mean, the Bible figures into Shakespeare so much, but the, the book of Job is so foundational to 
Western culture, Western thought. Um, and, and some Eastern too, because it goes into Islamic tradition and, uh, you know, the, you start to move into Asia through the Middle East and everything else. So, um, but the point is, is that like in the book of Job, the whole book is about the idea of, you don't get to know God's plan. Like you don't, you can sit there and you can question it all you want. The answers are not for you and they never were. And if you don't like it, suck it up and bow down and, you know, like just give yourself to the will of, of the divine. Like, that's what you get. You get to serve, right? Like if God wants to hand Job over to Satan on a bet, like, and let him just have at, then Job doesn't need to know why, you know, because God created Satan. So that's another creature that's under, you know, the divine providence. So it's the exact same thing. This is, this is Shakespeare's, in a sense, this is, this is very much a, a Shakespeare's book of Job. Um, if anybody wants to check out the book of Job, um, I would recommend um, the Stephen Mitchell translation. And even though he never names Satan by name in the translation, it's theoretically it's Satan, um, who is the, I believe the accusing angel in the, in the uh, Mitchell translation. But, it, but I love Stephen Mitchell. I know I'm such a nerd. I have a favorite translator um, of, of particularly religious texts um, and philosophical texts. But uh, Stephen Mitchell is great. Um, and his translation of the book of Job is awesome. And um, the Cohen brothers did a movie called A Serious Man, which is based on the book of Job. So if you want to continue to be uh, pissed off and unsatisfied, um, another very Shakespearean modern take on the same concept of Hamlet and the book of the book of Job, um, the Cohen brothers, a uh, serious man in the Stephen Mitchell translation of the book of Job. So that's my two cents. I don't know. What do you got? Okay. Last thing. So I mentioned that um, Marcellus and Horatio, you know, well, Hamlet and the ghost, they kind of go off to talk on their own, um, you know, because the ghost waves Hamlet over. Um, but, you know, once Hamlet and Marcellus and Horatio are back together, Marcellus and Horatio want to know what happened um Hamlet kind of doesn't answer but of course they've already seen the ghost so Hamlet is telling them um you know to swear not to tell anyone and it's it's kind of this funny element where Hamlet says you know swear and then we get the ghost under the stage saying swear and like I said it's kind of funny but I was thinking about it and have you ever read it that the ghost is calling from under the stage because it's supposed to be like he's in purgatory? Like, I never. Oh, yeah. I mean, like on the first read, I didn't pick that up, but I'm rereading it like a second time. So. Well, yeah. And I mean, and the other question is, is he in purgatory or is he in hell? You know, so, I mean, there's both possibilities, you know, the ghost is, is calling from underneath and it's like, again, 
you know, underneath, okay, where, like how far underneath are we talking about here? Like, are we talking about, you know, the, the waiting, the waiting room, or are we talking about, you know, the, the, the uh, lake of fire here uh, below? So there's that. And then there's also this, that echoing is, there's a, there's a bunch of different ways to interpret that. And this is, starts to get a little tricky, but I'll try to, I'll try to get it, which is uh, number, number one, let me see if I can, if I'm, I'm not going to lose my train of thought on this because it's complex, but um, one is that is, are these being echoed because Hamlet is under the control of the ghost? Is Hamlet now sort of acting as a puppet? And so we see this, this repetition, you know, it's kind of like uh, a, a slight delay of ventriloquy, right? Um, the other thing is that Shakespeare wrote plays and we presume that plays are necessarily this third person objective thing, right? Where we're the audience and we have a fair and objective view of the action on the stage and that it's, especially something like Shakespeare, that we're essentially dealing with an invisible third person omniscient kind of narrator right? Who's allowing us to see all the action and anybody can have a soliloquy and we can be exposed to any of the thoughts. But what if that's not the case? What if Hamlet is infecting us with his madness and it's actually a skewed first person perspective? So in other words, we're seeing what Hamlet sees and we're experiencing it from outside of Hamlet, but we're experiencing it through Hamlet's perception of events. And so maybe the ghost doesn't exist at all. Maybe the ghost is a delusion. And maybe Hamlet is concocting the whole thing. So when he says it, there's an echo, right? Because it's a projection of his own self. So I think we start to get into these speculations where again, you know, you can't, I don't, I don't know what Shakespeare was thinking about narrative perspective, but I've definitely seen times in Shakespeare's plays and I wouldn't put it past him, you know, um, to write just a regular play, like everybody expects on the stage but that it's a skewed perspective. And I think it was, I forget the, I want, it's not Rashomon, but there's a Kurosawa film and Kurosawa loved Shakespeare. And he used Shakespeare as a basis for, you know, I think two of his movies, three of his movies, um, Akira Kurosawa, the great Japanese director. And, um, but I'd have to look up the name of the film, but there's a film in which he, tells a story three times from three narrative perspectives. And every single time the story is pretty radically different. Um, and I think that there's a fair argument to be made and many fair arguments to be made against it, um, that Shakespeare was telling stories 
from a first person perspective, but then setting them in this third person play setting, which it is really kind of a trip to think about. Um, but he was pretty sharp dude and I wouldn't put it past him and I wouldn't put it past him to slip in and out of that, you know, slip closer to first person at times and then slip out of it. But, but again, that's, is it a reach? Yeah, I guess it's kind of a reach as an interpretation, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's so psychologically complex that it, it, I think at the end of the day, what it all comes back to is how does the play make you feel and what does it do to your thought process? And if at the end you feel anguish and confusion and you feel nuts and unsatisfied and even angry and bitter and a little bit ripped off, um, which this play tends to do, um, then Shakespeare made you feel that. That's a hell of a trick. Yeah, I mean, when you were saying that, you know, the well, we've been talking about how the ghost is influencing Hamlet and the, you know, Hamlet could be the ghost's puppet, which in some ways is true if the ghost is telling Hamlet these things and it's making him act. When you said that, then I was also thinking, well, you could also look at it, you know, Hamlet's puppeteering the ghost because Hamlet speaks and the ghost speaks. But then I'm thinking, well, we kind of get some validation that the ghost is real, not just from Hamlet's perspective, because Marcellus and Horatio see the ghost too. Right. But then if we just say the whole thing is in Hamlet's perspective, then that could not be true. So all in all, we basically just spent an hour talking about how we don't know. Yeah, Hamlet. Yep. Right? To be or not to be. That's the that the whole speech is like, if if I knew I could make a freaking decision, and we'll get to that. We will get to that speech, but that's the whole, you know, that's sort of there's always something out there that's that's at the heart of the play. Yeah. You know, where where Shakespeare just kind of, and I think that any writer does this. I always look for this in books, you know is like, it's not just Shakespeare. This is my sort of personal take on storytelling, which is a writer writes and writes and writes and trying to get at something. And there is a moment in a great book and sometimes two or three or four, like that you'll see in Dostoevsky, you know, um, and Shakespeare and, and a handful of other great writers. But there will be a moment when for a page or a paragraph or some short, you know, whatever burst, they actually get to it and then they kind of move away from it. And that's the whole purpose of sitting there writing this was working and working and working and working on this idea until they finally get to it. And I think that Shakespeare can do that so many times throughout a play where he gets to something just noble and transcendent. So, yeah. And it just, this play is about, this play is about you never get the answers and you will never be satisfied because you won't know. 
So, and, and in, in that, it's about faith. And that is Act One of Hamlet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions or feedback, please let us know at the Shakespeareans Podcast at gmail.com. Next time, we'll be jumping into Act Two, the rising action. So things are getting even better than they already are. I hope to see you there.